Hey there, it's Dr. Nazanin Mo'oli, and I want to chat with you about a key ingredient for a fabulous date night, feeling sexy. And come on, let's be real. What you wear plays a big part in how you rock that confidence. That's why I'm thrilled to introduce you to Quince. Quince brings you premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts starting at just $30, along with washable silk tops, 40-carat gold jewelry, and more. And guess what? All of their goodies are priced 50 to 80% lower than similar brands. By teaming up directly with top factories, Quince skipped the middleman and hands us the saving. Plus, they stick to factories with safe, ethical practices and top-notch fabrics and finishes. How awesome is that? Picking from Quince's website was tough because they have a ton of fabulous choices. I ended up going for their 100% washable silk sleep dress in champagne. And let me tell you, my husband was floored. He's convinced whoever rocks this is in for a blast. I'm going to record some content on that dress so you can see how fabulous is that dress. Elevate your date night style with Quince. Pop over to quince.com slash sexology for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash sexology to get free shipping and 365-day returns. quince.com slash sexology. Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello and welcome to episode 47 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hope you're enjoying your fall. It's interesting that in L.A., it's in mid-80s at time of this recording. I'm recording this right before Thanksgiving. And I love when the weather is warm, but it shows like it's not good for environment. Anyhow, this week has been very challenging for me. Like many of you guys, I continuously hear about this ongoing allegation of sexual harassment and abuse and assaults on women, men, some of the people in politics, some in Hollywood, some people that I kind of felt, okay, I could totally see that. And some people that I liked. It's just so hard to see that someone that you know and trust had this darker part of their personality and abused people for years and years. And in most of these cases, it seems like these things are going on for a while. And the person, the perpetrator had more than one victim in cases like 10 to 15 other people. And I personally been disgusted by the news that I keep hearing from the Roy Moore Alabama Senate candidates. And just like this allegation for like sexual involvement with minors. And like, okay, I'm telling you guys between me and you, if he gets elected, I'm moving to Canada. This is my breaking point. Anyhow, I thought it's very important for us to talk about consent. So I'm doing this mini a series on sexuality and consent. We're going to explore uh, about like what consent means, uh, what it means for someone when they get violated, 
why some people engage in this kind of form of hostility and violence. And I invited my friends and colleagues who are, who are mental health professionals to talk about this topic. But before I go there, I just wanted to let you guys know that some of the materials might be triggering. And it might bring up memories, feelings. So if this is a sensitive topic for you, I encourage you to kind of pass. I mean, although I would love for you to hear my content, but just maybe not listen to this couple in future episodes. And sometimes I notice that at times we don't know when something is triggering. And if you get triggered, if you're someone who had exposure to any kind of sexual harassment assaults and you find yourself being triggered, I encourage you to reach out to get support. Two of the resources that I know that are great and I trust, one is RAIN organization. It's the Rape, Abuse and Incest National Network. They have a hotline that you can call in anytime within 24 hours window and you're going to talk to a professional volunteer, someone who have some experience talking about this, this kind of issues and they can walk you through the resources or if you just want to chat, they're willing to chat. They're wonderful people. And the number for that organization is 800-656-4673. And you can chat with them online, which is exciting. Through their website, it's rainorg, R-A-I-N-N.org. I leave the uh, link in the show notes. Or also you can text someone at 741-741 to talk to a professional or another person. If you're feeling triggered, you're feeling discomfort. But I thought it would be important for me personally to talk about this with you guys because it seems like many of my clients been affected. I personally feel triggered all the time. So our guest today is Mrs. Jeanette Tolson. She's going to talk to us about definition of consent, why some people engage in this form of hostility, talk about what me and you can do to change the culture of consent. So Mrs. Jeanette Tolson is a licensed clinical social worker and credentialed alcoholism and substance abuse counselor in New York. She earned her master's in social work at SUNY Albany and completed a postgraduate certificate in sex therapy and sexuality education at the University of Michigan. Prior to opening her private practice in 2015, she was the executive director for a not-for-profit community recovery organization. Ms. Tolson currently has an academic appointment at Sony Delhi and has been teaching there continuously since 2009. Ms. Tolson has worked in a variety of outpatient settings. Her clinical interests, including working with relationships from an attachment perspective, LGBTQ issues, recovery from infidelity, and substance use disorders. Here's my conversation with Mrs. Jeanette Tolson. Welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. As I shared with you during the introduction, I am super excited to have Mrs. Jeanette Tolson with, with us today. Jeanette, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you. 
I'm glad that you accepted our invitation. And today we're going to talk about consent. This is something that recently we hear a lot about it. And I wanted to kind of expand on the topic in the light of what's been going on in the media and with all these allegations and sexual harassments. So let's start with saying what constitute consent. I'm just kind of curious that how this concept, how do you see this concept evolve in past few decades? Because certainly it changed from the time that I, I was a freshman at college till now. Yeah, well, I think historically we've primarily talked about consent in regards to sexual activity only and making it related to age, you know, who can actually consent to have, you know, sexual activity. And over the years, we've seen an evolution into not just thinking about consent related to sex, but, you know, that we should have control over our bodies, our sensations, how we talk about our emotions. And with regard to sex, that it's not just the responsibility of the person giving consent, but also the person making sure that they've asked for consent or that they've checked in and that it's not a one-shot deal, you know, that you don't ask and then you can participate in whatever's going on, that you continually keep updating and asking if what's going on feels good, if everybody involved likes what's happening and wants it to continue. Right. And I noticed that when I was in college, the saying was like, no means no. So so kind of like the image people had in mind that when someone said like, don't kind of do this behavior on me, like with me, then that was salt and rape. But like right now, as you mentioned, it just evolves so much. And what I like about that, this new evolution is the conversation about how it's reversible. So if, as you said, if someone gives consent to a behavior like an hour ago, it doesn't mean that it's like right now, if they change their mind, that they're kind of, it's a binding contract. Exactly. That no does mean no, but yes, doesn't mean yes to everything and all the time. Right. And like, you know, how they talk about like into like consent given enthusiastically, because sometimes I feel people manipulate each other to get consent or guilt trip each other. And I think it can go at times from both gender. And it's just like, you know, the real consent is someone giving it to you enthusiastically, willingly. And just as you said, that's the responsibility of the person who gives consent and also someone, the other partner to ask about like whether the other person is willing to do the behavior. Exactly. And a lot of times people feel like continuing to ask or having the discussion will make things awkward. And that's not how they envision, you know, physical intimacy with somebody, but it doesn't have to be awkward and weird. You know, I mean, being able to communicate about what you want and need and what feels good can be done in a way that doesn't feel awkward. Absolutely. And I, I, and I had like, I work with young adults as well. And they're like even teens and sometimes they're talking about how they playfully talk about it. And it's just actually some sign can be a sign of confidence. They can be playful about it. So it doesn't necessarily means like there is this kind of a like a very serious kind of a, like a non-erotic thing that people can do. And like in the other communities, they're doing it all the time. Like BDSM community, they're very serious about consent. So it can be done like that's some that can be done in a way that doesn't feel like awkward, as you said, or unattractive. Exactly. And we don't, we still don't spend enough time teaching people how to have 
you know, consent conversations and how to incorporate it into their sexuality. And so when they envision doing it on their own and they haven't had any guidance or haven't thought it through, they feel like, I don't know how to do this. There's a lot of awkwardness. And one thing that the BDSM community has done really well is to teach about consent and communicate ahead of time and talk about negotiation and talk about, you know, how to navigate that. And, and many people who participate in BDSM do it really well. Exactly. And I love when you talked about this is like any other skills can be learned. And like any other sexual education, I feel, as you mentioned, we haven't learned as much about it. So it's if that's something that's a case, you can definitely work on fine tuning. Where is the challenges for you? And what can you do to kind of say no or like, you know, kind of like change things around? So one thing is I'm just seeing a lot in the media. It's this sexualized hostility, sexual assault, sexual harassment. So what is your definition of sexualized hostility? Sexualized hostility is when there's rage and aggression and it comes out in a sexualized way, whether that be through exposing oneself to someone who's not interested or without permission or, you know, can include touch and even um, in the most violent forms that we've seen, you know, assault, rape in and of itself, it's expressing the anger and rage in a sexualized way. And there's a spectrum of how that behavior can come out. Right. And one thing I want to make sure our listeners, they know that like, you know, there is nothing wrong with eroticized anger. I know people that's part of their template. They talked about it with their partner the partner's consent to that and its consent is part of that. But from what I'm hearing is like a big part of the challenge is when someone, as you said, like exposing themselves or doing this kind of an advancement to kind of taking advantage of the other person. And I know that sometimes even the act of terrorizing the victim is arousing. So why, based on your experience, why do you feel like some perpetrator find it arousing to terrorize their victim? When the victim is feeling not in control or um, being humiliated in some way without their permission, the reaction and the terror that they might see in the victim is, is what is arousing to the individual who's perpetrating it. So being in that I mean, I think probably people have heard before, you know, sexual assault isn't about sex. It's about power and control. And when we see why it's arousing, it is that control without the person's consent, which is very different than negotiating with your partner about trying on different roles and doing something in a playful, eroticized way. Right. And I love how you kind of differentiate that. And certainly I feel it's about power at times and kind of asserting your power on someone. And I'm like, and most women, I've been kind of receiver and the receiver end of like sexual harassment and all kind of those behaviors. And like, I consider myself being uh, someone who's like very sex positive and being exposed to like this kind of hostility makes you feel small and it doesn't yeah. necessarily relate it to sex. Right. We, we might all, we all find different things, exciting, arousing things that feel good to us. And that's part of why we need to be able to have conversations with people that we're involved with so that we are all getting our needs met in a way that that is consensual for everyone. 
And so what might work for one person is not what works for another person. Right. And just this kind of like making someone feel small. I know no one can make us feel a certain way, but it can be frustrating and kind of like very wrong to kind of like in order for our needs to get met, kind of forcing other party to do things. I was listening, looking at this kind of video news on CNN the other night, and the, they were interviewing someone, and the person was talking about, okay, so if the victims were truly were assaulted, why they were talking about the Alabama Senate candidate, that like why they didn't speak up like 20 years ago, 30 years ago, this must have not been, this might not be true because they haven't kind of filed complaint or they didn't report it which sounded very, to me, it wasn't congruent with my experience that what I see with survivors and victims of assaults. So what might stop someone from reporting sexual assault or harassment based on your experience? Yeah, there are so many reasons. So the first one I'll start with is, number one, people don't even recognize sometimes that what happened to them is assaultive, especially when there was no touch involved. It can be very confusing about, you know, whether the behavior is something reportable. It might have made the person feel uncomfortable, but they don't quite know what to do with it. They feel somehow responsible themselves for being in the situation. Um, we often hear people questioning, you know, victims' choices when things happen. Um, and so, you know, being able to recognize that, that the person was violated is the first thing that they have to recognize to be able to report it. And then secondly, depending on the situation and who is involved, that person, you know, might have some type of power, um, economic power over the individual. So, you know, recently we've seen a lot of um, higher ups in the, you know, show business industry and, you know, people worry if I speak out about this, what will happen? Will my career be ruined? You know, what, what is my future because of this individual mistreating me in this way? Right. And one thing that you mentioned that was very interesting, first one was like not being recognizable because I, I sometimes I feel as women, we are at times, unfortunately, many times been at the receiving end of like harassment. And sometimes the perpetrators are very good with doing this kind of ambiguous behaviors things that might be like you feel violated, but you don't know. It's not like, you know, they're sexually assaulted you, like there was penetration or molestation, but they, they made you feel uncomfortable. And at times it's just going to be very hard for people to kind of identify those. And at times they have, like, for example, I can talk about my situation is that now that there are more conversation in the media, I constantly remembering this like mini episodes that people said things like co-worker teachers that there were it was sexual harassment but because of you know how common these behaviors are, are this like unfortunately in these days and age that you tend to at least I tend to I tend to minimize them and it wasn't until now that I kind of say oh wow I had all these memories but I I wasn't thinking about them right and so when one person speaks out and you hear their story and it resonates with your experience, then you can start to identify, oh, that's what happened to me. And that wasn't okay. And I can speak up about it. And so that's why you often will see not just one person reporting, but several 
kind of group, you know, one happens and another happens and another happens because more people hear the experience of someone else and it resonates with what has happened to them, like you're mentioning. And then they feel like I can speak up about this too, because this was wrong and this happened to me. And I didn't know at the time that it was, you know, something I could speak up about, or I didn't feel like I was keep, you know, able to do that. And now that other people are bringing up their stories, I feel more comfortable sharing my experience. Additionally, because now I've connected with what happened to me. Right. And the other thing was you you were talking about questioning the victims or survivors, depending on how, what term you're using, decisions and the choices they made. And I see that so often, for example, a girl or a woman or a man being like drunk. I mean, being drunk, it doesn't mean that they had they kind of welcome assault or harassment. And sometimes people feel guilty because of that kind of saying like, OK, I was under influence. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's my fault that that happened. Exactly. And we, when people hear the stories of what happened and they question the survivor about the circumstances, then they're potentially making judgments about whether that person put themselves in a situation that wasn't safe without recognizing that when you're asking those questions, you're implying that the survivor you know, somehow asked for what happened or somehow could have prevented if they had just made some different choices when, you know, we need to be asking, you know, why is the perpetrator making the choice to do things without someone's permission? Right. And sometimes I hear, unfortunately, from my colleagues or therapists that are from like other time or previous generation, that's certainly not the case for everyone. But I was doing this, I part of different group consultation groups and one of my colleagues were talking about the client that she she had that the client was experienced sexual assault and the other colleague said well uh she she dated the guy and they were kind of sleeping in the same bed i mean all these kind of things which made me furious because i'm thinking okay they were in the same bed but it doesn't give permission to the partner to do things with their body that the other per partner or person didn't agree explicitly agreed on yeah, and I think you've talked about this on your podcast before, the tea, the consent video about tea. I love that one. Yeah, that's one yeah. of my favorites. And when you, when you watch that and, you know, someone's uh, one of the parts, you know, about pouring the tea down an unconscious person's throat, you know, people <laughs> right. are like, that's ridiculous. Who would say that that's okay? But we do ask those questions when when it comes to sex. And it's interesting that when we take it away from sex and we make it about tea, everybody seems to understand what behavior is acceptable and what is not. And for some reason, when it's a partnered situation, you know, and we're talking about sex or when someone has been drinking alcohol, somehow all of our thoughts about consent don't match up. It's right. Interesting. Yeah. Right. And I definitely leave a link to the YouTube video on tea and consent and the show right. notes. I think it's just very good, playful way of like seeing it. Because as you said, exactly, I have people that are laughing. You say, of course, I'm not going to pour tea on someone when they're unconscious or I'm not going to force tea on them if they change their mind that I don't want tea. So why is it different when it comes to sexuality? You're excellent. There's an excellent point there, yeah, that you made. The other thing is that you mentioned about the kind of imbalance in power, like the consequence of, of speaking up 
and the price that people are paying. So I feel it's just like kind of naive and reductionistic at times to kind of think about, well, why she didn't talk about it? Because in cases, many cases, for example, in Harvey Weinstein, people kind of talk, spoke up and they talked about it. And there were like, you know, the lawyers, they found dirt on the person saying that like she was involved in other sex parties and kind of like blackmail the person. So it's just definitely more complicated than, oh, why, what was going on if it was truthful? If she was truthful, she would have said that, like reported it. Exactly. And when you've heard of the way that another person has been treated in a negative way, you know, when they've reported, it, it makes us fearful of what will happen to us. And in the moment when the experience happens, you're not in control. And you feel like when I report it, I'm not in control over what happens to me in my future. That's a very scary prospect. Absolutely. And I was listening to this uh, reporters, the uh, journalist investigator that kind of broke the news and wrote the news. And they were telling the story of how challenging it was for them to get to this woman because they, they said, oh, we told the stories in the past to other journalists and then they were never able to write the story. So even when you tell people, it doesn't mean that like you're, you will be able to get justice or your voice going to be heard. Yeah, nothing may come of it. No, you know, nobody may take it seriously. I mean, as people are speaking out about what happened to them, you hear other actors who it didn't directly happen to, but maybe they heard rumblings that this was going on and there were no consequences. Nothing happened. Nobody said, I'm not going to work with this person because this is how they're treating people. Absolutely. So I think, yes, it's great that we are talking about it now. It's great that women, finally, they, some of them, they found they had a voice and they have a voice and they're speaking up about, speaking out about the, all the harassment and assault and every day we hear it in the news. But I think that's if we want to see a change, it needs to be cultural and all of us needs to be part of it. So what do you think about how can we create a culture of consent? I love um, that you asked that question because it really puts the responsibility on all of us to shift the way that we think about consent, the way that we teach consent, the way that we talk about consent so that things feel different in our environment, right? And I would say that, I mean, consent starts with teaching children to recognize what they're feeling, be able to express it and have people acknowledge it. So even as simple as something like, you know, when we're, you know, when we have to brush our child's hair and it might be naughty, you know, to say, you know, now it's time to brush your hair. I know, you know, this is going to hurt. Do you want to do it? Would you like me to do it? And have that conversation. Or when the child is saying, you know, my stomach hurts, instead of saying your stomach doesn't hurt, you just don't want to go to school or your stomach doesn't hurt, you're just hungry, acknowledging the feeling that they're identifying and helping them to figure out what the message is that they should be getting from that feeling. So I would say starting, you know, even young and recognizing that when we have a feeling or a thought that it should be honored and discussed and that, that you know, we all have a responsibility to help teach people how to acknowledge and, and notice that. And then, you know, as I mean, that, you know, is relevant to even young children, but to continue to have the conversations about what is consent, how do you obtain consent, how do you give consent, how do you say when something doesn't feel right, and be able to communicate that so that it's listened to and that it's respected, and what do you do if, if it doesn't happen? 
Does that make sense? It does. And I love your talking about recognizing, helping your teenager recognize to, you know, like what they're feeling because it, that definitely and certainly applies to consent because at times I have clients that are talking about, okay, I felt that this was wrong, but I didn't say anything because I wasn't sure exactly how I was feeling or I said, like, I can get through with this. And like, then later on, they felt that that was wrong and they didn't get give enough voice to that part of themselves. Exactly. I, I mean, I'm a big advocate for education and having the conversations ahead of time so that people are equipped to make the decisions that feel the best to them. Unfortunately, sometimes when we're talking about sex, people have a perspective that if we talk about it, people are going to want to do it. If we talk about it, we're encouraging some behavior. Teenagers are interested and have sexual desires anyway, so let's equip them with the skills that they need to be able to have healthy sexuality and have healthy sexual experiences because it's a part of natural development. Absolutely. And kind of like, I, I love when you mentioned that it's not talking about it. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to act on it because it's sexuality is not something you forget about it. Okay. If you don't bring it up, <laughs> they might yeah. not feel it. So it's there. You might as well teach them the tools that help them to not get traumatized or not violate someone. So, I mean, I think many parents, at least the parents I know, parents of daughters, they're talking about it with their uh, daughters and young women. But what about men? What are your, the recommendations you have for the parents of men that they can teach and talk to their sons and uh, young boys about consent? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I don't know that it has to be gendered, but I think in general, because we tend to see more, you know, accusations, right, coming out from women against men, because it can happen and seem sex, um, sexual experiences, you know, an issue with consent. Right. But just in general, you know, that whenever you're involved in some type of, you know, emotional, physical, sexual encounter, you know, that it's, I mean, to teach that every, like the, the healthy sexuality is something that's consensual, something that both people want, something that feels good to everyone, and that it's both parties' responsibility to check it. So it's the obligation is not on the one individual to say this doesn't feel good. There's also a responsibility, you know, from the other partner to say, is this okay? You know, does this feel good? Do you want to continue? Do you like to do this? And that to listen to that and to pay attention to that. Right. And also you're definitely right on the fact that, you know, it's not gendered, right? So it's not always men are perpetrators and women's are victims. Certainly we see like in same-sex relationship, women's that are perpetrators. But what I think about, like at least in my culture, like in more conservative, conservative traditional cultures, sometimes I see this message that parents think that, oh, boys are being boys, or like, you know, sexual, sexuality is a drive. And, you know, when you are in the midst of it, you cannot control it, which is not true. And I feel like parents are constantly kind of feed into this, like traditional inaccurate information that's kind of like disempowered their ch children and teens on kind of like identifying their sexuality and also being in control of it. Yeah. And so when saying boys will be boys is really excusing the behavior and not holding the person accountable for not participating in the consent process. 
I think that's kind of what you're saying, right? Right. And so if we teach that, that no, that that behavior is not acceptable, no matter who you are, it's not just a behavior that we can expect from males that also helps us shift, you know, to your original question about the culture of consent, you know, thinking about it, not from a, well, this is just kind of a male behavior. And and we just have to know that this is the way that they behave, recognizing that everyone can take responsibility for making sure that everybody involved in a sexual experience wants to be participating in the way that they're participating throughout the entire process, instead of excusing the behavior as this is just the gendered behavior of males. Right. And as you mentioned, language is very important, kind of saying that, okay, boys being boys, or the other one I hear is Hollywood, the way that's the way things are in Hollywood, kind of accepting it and giving permission to this kind of behavior instead of saying that, okay, how can we, this is dysfunctional, this is not working, and how can we shift that? Right. So tell me about like, you know, if, if a parents, they haven't talked with their kids from younger age, and the kid is a teen, how can you start talking about these things? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, picking a time to just kind of pull your teenager aside and say, you know, I want to have these conversations about how things, you know, feel to you and what, how do you recognize when you want to participate in an activity and, and to just bring it up, even though it might be an awkward conversation to start. And it probably will start with just giving a little bit, bit of information about consent in general, and then kind of leaving the teen to kind of think about it and come back with questions. I can send you some um, links to some good books for parents as well that they can read um, or books that they could also kind of leave available for their teen to read because sometimes just giving them the opportunity and exposure to some good quality information and then being open to discussing it, you know, is a really good place to start. Absolutely. And I appreciate if you send me those links. And the other piece of that is kind of talking to the teens, obviously, the earlier is the better. But I mean, kind of like bringing up the conversation around consent. And really, as you said, like listening to your teens and their concerns and what they know. Because sometimes I feel parents, because they're uncomfortable around talking about sexuality, they don't allow questions or they don't even allow their teen to talk about their experience. And if you feel your teen is being kind of harassed, sexually assaulted, kind of providing them with resources. And if it's challenging for you to hear that, kind of like referring them to therapists, school counselors, like at least connect them to the services that people who are able to kind of identify these things and assess for these things. Yeah, exactly. And with things coming out in the in the media, it's a really good time to say, hmm, what do you think about that? What do you know about consent? And so it doesn't even have to be personalized initially with the teen, but just talking about the issue because it's in the news is a really good opening to start to have the conversations and share, you know, the parent's perspective in a way that's not personalized to the teen. So we're not talking about your specific behavior. We're talking about this news story. And it's a way to talk about it from a depersonalized perspective, which might make it feel a little bit more comfortable for both the teen and the parent. Right. I didn't think about it, but that's an excellent point that now it's present. It's everywhere. It's a good time for you to kind of 
share your own values and thoughts about this with your teen and also making it as a conversation. So you're, they can also talking about it, even if it means their perspective is different. Exactly. Yeah. So I noticed we're toward the end of our time, Jeanette, but I want to make sure that our listeners can get a hold of you. I know you have a number of different resources. So what would be the best way to get in touch with you? The best way to get in touch with me is to check out my website, JeanetteTolsonLCSW.com. Um, I have uh, an ebook coming out, hopefully in the beginning of next year, teaching women to connect with their own body sensations and recognize uh, what is pleasurable for them about sex. So there will be a link to that on my website, as well as a podcast. It's geared towards couples who are in kind of the, you know, four to seven years of their relationship um, and how to recognize what bad habits might be creeping in that they can be mindful of to, you know, enrich their relationship. So if people go to my website, they'll get all the information as things come out. Wonderful. And congratulations on all this wonderful product and services you're creating. And my husband and I were in that like four to seven. So I will, I'm excited and willing and looking forward to hear and check out your new podcast. All right. Thank, thank you, you so much for your time. <laughs> thank you so much. Hey guys, I hope you found my interview with Mrs. Jeanette Tolson helpful. And it gave you some ideas about what can you do to change things around consent and be more supportive of yourself and protective of yourself and others who might have been affected through this form of hostility or they don't have a voice or they're scared. And we all can do things to change this. You know, it's easy to think about, okay, I'm not in Hollywood or I work in mostly uh, female-dominated field of work like myself I know with therapy psychology these days we are mostly women in the field but I think it's important to kind of acknowledge that we all have a role first thing I want to recommend you to do is if you have a history yourself kind of explore that with someone with a professional and get support around that because one thing that I sometimes see that there are parents that they've been victims or survivors of sexual assault, harassment, or abuse, they haven't processed it. And somehow they kind of conveyed this confusing message around consent and power to their children. Definitely it hasn't been their, uh, their intention to do that. But, you know, it's interesting that how trauma may manifest itself from one generation to another generation. So if you're going to do one thing, I want you to seek out help, support. There are a number of different professional groups that you can reach out to. And if you notice, I'm emphasizing professional groups because disclosing trauma, something that painful is tricky. You don't want to do it when you're not ready, when you are at present of someone that doesn't know how to respond to it and help you to process it. I see it all the time. When I go at conferences last year, I went to Gearbus Rally, which was uh, Sofia Amoroso's conference. And there was a celebrity was saying that all of us should talk about this sexual assaults and abuse and give a voice to it in Twitter. 
But I've seen people getting triggered and becomes they get flooded and overwhelmed. So please be intentional and mindful. Who are you processing your emotional uh, trauma with or sexual trauma with? Anyhow, next week we're going to talk about consent as well. We're going to continue our conversation. So please let me know if you have any thoughts, anything you want to know more about it. You can email it to me as always. I really appreciate it when you leave us an honest review in iTunes and Stitchers. It's personally, it's very rewarding to me, but more than that, it helps this show to reach a broader audience. And I'm doing, I'm here for you. I'm doing this for you. And I, I would appreciate it if you do this favor for me. All right. Have a lovely day. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.